Uh, you can tell that there's no presidential debate tonight. I'm here and you're here. Uh, honestly, when I arrived today at the, in the, at the Minneapolis airport, I had someone greet me and they say, welcome home. Uh, I've been to Minneapolis three times this month. Uh, this is my last visit this month. <laughs> I hope when I return in June for a conference um, with Minority Financial Services Advisors, you all would have experienced a little bit of spring. <laughs> it's not bad. I'm a southerner. I grew up in Louisiana. I love cold weather. <laughs> Especially when I can come up to Minnesota and see that great and mighty river, the Mississippi River. I grew up right adjacent to the river in a little small town outside of New Orleans called Kenna. I was born in New Orleans, and my parents moved out to Kenna to ensure that their kids, Cheryl Shiladonna, Tata Chet, Lisa Dimitri, Kevin Zola, uh, get a good education. Uh, yeah, we're a Catholic family. I don't know if uh, I'm telling you my, I'm one of nine children, the third of nine, uh, would matter much to you, but uh, I thank God that I, I come from a very strong, a very, a very, great family and a great family tradition. My family is still uh, struggling to get back on their feet in the height of the, uh, the storm and the aftermath of Katrina. My family uh, was scattered like the four winds, eight states, 14 cities. I had a cousin who somehow or another landed in Colorado and, you know, I was calling up my brothers and my sisters. I had a war room at my house. The first level, of course, was my dad, who was 75 at the time. He's 77, gone on 25. <laughs> and my sisters and my brothers, my nieces and my nephews, and then, of course, my uncles and my aunts, and then my first cousins, my second cousins, and my third cousins, all down to my eighth cousin. Like Barack Obama, I have some, you know, black sheep in the family. He's related to Dick Cheney. I'm related to a lot of other people. <laughs> and I had a cousin who called me and said, I'm in Colorado and it's cold. And I said, oh, you want a blanket? He said, no, I need you to send me some pickled pig feet. I said, I can't put that in the mail. Since 9-11, we can't package that kind of stuff, the boudin, the andouille sausages. You got to come home for that. And yes, I did manage to figure out a way to get it dried and send it on to him. But it's good to be in Minnesota. It's good to be back. And I'm looking forward to coming to the Republican convention. Any, any Republicans in the House, I'll be back in September. Don't, don't be afraid. It's OK. Someone has to come and make sure that you're having an honest proceeding. And no one steals the votes of John McCain and Mike Huckabee. Don't come back as a last minute you know, third ballot candidate. So I will be here, and I'm looking forward to it as I did back in 2004 when I was up in New York, staying with the Wyoming and Alabama delegations. That was interesting. <laughs> I went to New York with $200 and I came back with 196. And people said, you didn't spend any money. I said, you know what, I like those Republicans. <laughs> Every time they saw me, they tried to give me money to leave town. They bought my dinner and said, is this your last meal? No, but come on, we'll feed you and you can go back on the train. They kept buying my meals and buying my drinks, so I love those Republicans. <laughs> I 
Well, Annie, thank you for your great introduction. Annie is a junior. She is a political science major. She's Hermione's Spanish. She plans to go to law school, and by the time she gets out of law school, she can represent me in something that I might do in the future. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, and I want to thank the St. Olaf Political Awareness Committee for sponsoring this event. And I'm going to talk about the 2008 presidential election, the election that doesn't seem to have an exit strategy, especially if you're a Democrat. <laughs> now, I never thought I would see this day. Two potential nominees, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, one black, one female. They're both exciting, both compelling, very talented, and of course, intelligent, good-looking, as Joe Biden would say, smart, and, and one of them uh, would in my judgment, either one of them would make a great president. And so I'm rooting for both of them. I tell people my head, at times my head's for Hillary, at times my heart's for Obama, at times my head for Obama, at times my heart for Hillary. I just don't know what my butt is going to do. <laughs> so I haven't gotten up to say anything about either one of them. But you can imagine growing up as a child in Louisiana on the other side of the train tracks and lived through segregation de jure and de facto, a child who felt the sting of discrimination on both the basis of my race and gender, what this day truly means. I never thought I would see this day. I was politically active before I was eligible to vote, persuading potential voters to register and encouraging them to embrace democracy. We the people, all the American people, I could not wait to get involved. I didn't wait until I turned 18. I got involved in my first campaign at the age of nine. But like most kids in my generation, I had to wait patiently as the people in my native South would come to embrace both minority as well as female candidates. I watched patiently as the South turned the tide and began to put minorities and women on the ballot. Along the way, I had to learn so much about our great democracy, even its imperfections, and you all know there are many. And with the help of people like Rosemary Minor, who was a civil rights activist in my community, Arthur Paul Clay, who was a daring preacher who got us together after Martin Luther King's assassination, I found my way into the political arena. And yes, I worked on Jimmy Carter's two campaigns as a student organizer, organizing across my hometown as well as across the state of Louisiana by the time I made it to the Louisiana State University. And by 1984, I fought my way into major political meetings and onto the national presidential stage where I had an opportunity to work as an organizer for the Reverend Jesse Jackson and later for the Mondale Ferraro campaigns. Along the way, I had to work in boardrooms and break rooms in which I was a sole minority. I recognized the irony that sometimes I gain entrance based on my gender, other times based on my race. And fortunately, or unfortunately, all too frequently, sometimes it was based on the fact that I was a twofer. <laughs> Actually, in the Dukakis campaign, I achieved the status of being a fourfer. Because not only was I, was I black and female, but I was from the South, many of the Participants in that campaign you know, came from the North or the Midwest. But also, I attended a non-private institution, LSU. Most of the people in the Dukakis campaign went to Harvard or Yale. <laughs> this whole national conversation about which group women African Americans have waited longer and kind of greater prejudice is framed as if these two categories don't overlap. 
This debate is not only simplistic, it's meaningless, and it's destructive and distracting to even attempt to quantify and compare the detrimental effect of different forms of discrimination. Moreover, it distracts us from the monumental achievement of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party will nominate either a woman or a black man for president. And with polling telling us that the majority of Americans prefer to see a Democrat in the White House come January, we will likely elect the first female or minority president of the United States of America. As I said, I never thought I would see this day and the sheer joy of it, the sheer joy and excitement that I have witnessed this entire presidential election season. I am going to keep my joy. And I know over the next couple of weeks as we enter the final stretch of this campaign season, one of them will lose, one of them will win. But I hope at the end of the day, we both believe, both of them will believe that the process was fair. This is supposed to be a democratic year for those of you who opened up your fortune cookie a couple of months ago. <laughs> With over one million newly registered voters just in the last 30 days alone, Democrats are prepared to not only win back the White House, but expand their majority in Congress. For the first time in almost 20 years, 36% of Americans self-identify as Democrats. Only 27% identify as Republicans. That's the lowest proportion of Republicans in almost 16 years. Independents, when asked which party do they prefer, they prefer the Democrats over Republicans by 51 to 37%. There's no question that this has been a historic, unconventional election season. Behold the champagne. Hold the champagne. Seven, in seven days, the voters in North Carolina and Indiana will cast their ballots. Between the two, 187 electoral votes, 72 in Indiana, 115 in North Carolina. In 14 days, uh, West Virginia will cast their ballots. In 21 days, the people of Oregon and Kentucky, and of course, on and on until June 3rd, 408 additional pledge delegates and eight primaries, one caucus. And if you look at the math right now, look at the math. Senator Obama leads overall 1733 to Senator Clinton's 1599. Remember, it takes 224. Annie had one little factoid wrong. Probably she hasn't looked at the news recently. Elliot Spitzer is no longer a superdelegate, the former governor of New York. He has some other super things to deal with right now, <laughs> but not worrying about coming, going to the convention in Denver. At this rate, Senator Obama needs 291 additional delegates to clinch the nomination, and Senator Clinton will need 425. Remember, 408 outstanding remaining pledged delegates nine contests, eight primaries, one caucus, 200, by my estimation, 288 undeclared superdelegates. Now let me just say this, I've said this before, we don't wear capes, we don't drive Batmobiles, many of us cannot hear the sound of a pin drop miles away or even right here, and no one, no one, would like to see us in spandex unless you have an appointment with Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> so 
So what are we going to do? I think the vast majority of superdelegates will continue to make their intentions known. We heard today from the governor of North Carolina who endorsed Senator Clinton. We heard yesterday from the senator from New Mexico who endorsed Barack Obama. They're all, they're all different types of ways that we can come to make up our minds. First, we can follow the will of the voters. Secondly, we can decide based on our knowledge of the candidates. We can also look at electability, you know, who has won the most more states, who has the best chance of beating John McCain, who could help us expand the electoral map, who currently, you know, have the lead in electoral votes based on the outcome in the primaries or caucuses that have been held to date. Uh, we can also ask the two of them to flip a coin. Uh, but I will hope at the end of the day that our votes, the remaining 288 superdelegates, will cast their ballots to help unify the party, to bring the party together, and ultimately to put the Democratic Party on the road to victory this fall. It matters to us. It matters who sits in the White House, who will take that oath of office next January, and who, of course, will offer the country the best solutions, the best plans to help solve many of our problems. From the war in Iraq, which many estimate, estimate will cost us close to $3 trillion to rising fuel prices, food prices, the number of Americans who are losing their jobs, losing their homes. It matters who sits in the White House in 2009. So I want to make sure that we get it right, not only because it matters to the Democratic Party and the future of the Democratic Party, but I want to make sure we get it right in terms of America. So this is not a contest about personalities for me. It's about the fate of the country. It's about us, the American people. And yes, it's about those who've been left behind, those who've been lost, and those who need a president of the White House who actually understands the needs of the vast majority of the American people, not just the special interests, not just those in power who are able to afford lobbyists, but those who really need a president on their side. Now, I believe that Senator Clinton as well as Senator Obama fit the description that I just laid out to you. And it's not a tough decision, but I wanna, I wanna see all of the people, all of the people who make up the Democratic Party, independents and others who are coming our way. I would like them to get a chance to weigh in on this before those of us who are super duper delegates somehow or another come in to end the race and to coronate a queen or a king. That's my personal view. If you talk to 795 superdelegates, you will get 795 opinions. In fact, you might get triple the number of superdelegates because we all hold the different opinions and we all come from, we come from all different walks of life. Former presidents, former vice presidents. I haven't talked to Al Gore since March. One, I don't want to let him know what it costs now to fill up my tank. He told me to get rid of that gas guzzling jalopy, but I told him I, I couldn't afford a hybrid until I, you know, like him, you know, could write a bestseller. <laughs> but I have replaced my light bulbs at home. That was interesting. By the way, can they come up with a better design? But hey, I, then it, it, it's okay, they look like pretzels. I'll just put them in, screw them in, and hope that uh, you know illuminate something other than my house. 
But I haven't talked to Al Gore, because I don't know where Al Gore is heading. I haven't talked to Jimmy Carter in almost two months. I don't know where Jimmy Carter is heading. I talked to Bill Clinton a couple months ago. I know where Bill Clinton is heading <laughs> with his vote. And of course, I know where Walter Mondale, because he supports Hillary Clinton. And so I'm proud of all of them, and I want to hear from them. But more importantly than hearing from Al Gore and Jimmy Carter and those I've worked for and know very well, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from the American people. What do you want? This is a tough one. I've never been in a race like this before. I've never seen the kind of excitement, the energy, the enthusiasm. If someone would have told me a year ago that the Democratic Party would raise over a half a billion dollars in the primary, I would say, what are you on? But it's true. Over two million new donors to the party. Hillary and Barack are out there really energizing the American people. Now, there are days when I don't like to see the elbows, you know, and the little, the little Rocky or the little, I don't know what you call that. I, I, I never was a great fan of Rocky. He ran up the stairs and he wore me, he wore me out. You know, when I want to do Stairmaster, I just go home and get two buttermilk biscuits and run back and forth to the kitchen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's important. It's an unconventional two historic candidacies. And, and the media often get it wrong. By the way, did I tell you I'm a cable call girl? And they call me, I come. I show up. I told Lou Dobbs last week that he wasn't my boo. But I looked over and I said, but Wolf is. <laughs> I went on, I went on uh, the situation room on Friday. I filled up my tank. It was close to $60. And I told Wolf, I said, Wolf, forget all of the issues that you want to talk about, Syria, North Korea, and Reverend Wright, and all the other things. Wolf, can I come on the show again tomorrow? Because I need to work a little bit more to pay to fill up my tank. And he said, this was an on-air discussion. He said, don't we send a car for you? I said, no, I drive myself, or maybe I should take out my bicycle. <laughs> but I love being a cable call girl, because I get an opportunity to talk about the issues. I also get an opportunity to raise important points, especially when I see misogyny, when I see racism, when I see overt you know, criticism of, say, Hillary or Barack. And it troubles me, and I've seen overt sexism, and I've seen overt racism. And I'm going to point this out to you because often you see people on TV and you say, what are they thinking? Well, back in January, there was this conversation. Senator Clinton showed some passion. You all might remember. It was like on January 6th. <laughs> I remember these dates. And again, why am I on TV when there's a breaking news? Like, winter storm blast, Donna's on. Power outage, Donna's on. Elliot Spitzer caught with a prostitute, roommate 71, $4,300 an hour. Well, in Louisiana, our rates are cheaper. <laughs> I had no answer for that one. And besides, in Louisiana, you get caught with a prostitute, you get reelected. Your poll numbers go up. We want you to eat, drink, and do the other thing. So I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on CNN, and I'm just sitting there waiting for my topics. And all of a sudden, one of my colleagues said, that was an awful display of PMS. She was not credible. And I'm sitting there. I'm on the B set, you know, because we're 
you know, it's, uh, it's one of those segments where it's an 8 o'clock segment, you're on the B set, you're not in the studio with the actual moderator. And I listened this man talk about PMS and about Hillary. First of all, I, my first response was, well, Mitt Romney has cried numerous times, and no one claimed he had PMS. <laughs> and for the record, I'm 48, and I know PMS. That's no PMS. <laughs> and the guy was like, I'm like, you know what PMS is? When a woman tell you to shut up. Like, shh, I won't hear another word from you. <laughs> I mean it. If I have to tell you this again, you will not have any teeth left in your mouth. That's PMS. I said, what you saw was Hillary. I said, I've known her all my life. I've known her for 25 years. I met her when she was at the Children's Defense Fund. I was an organizer, and that was passion. She's talking about why she's in this race. They spent three days telling Hillary Clinton that she was dead, that she was not going to win, that she could not come from behind, and how terrible her campaign, what should change in her campaign. And every show I went on, I had to say, well, you know, she might win. No, she's not going to win. I'm like, well, this is a state that is friendly toward women. They have a female speaker. They had a female governor. They have a, a female Senate leader. They like women, so maybe the women and the men will vote for Senator Clinton. Well, Senator Obama is up 13% in the poll. I understand, but New Hampshire loves the Clintons. So 7.30 that night, and you know, we get all our exit polls, and the exit polls are pretty much what you think they are. It shows that Senator Obama has a, you know, a very modest lead, but Senator Clinton is within two points. Now, this is before Nashua, before Manchester, before the actual vote totals come in. And the one thing I noticed was that the percentage of women that they had was lower than what the percentage of women traditionally in a state like New Hampshire, always over 54%. That night it ended up being 57%. And by the time Nashua and Manchester came in, I knew that in Keene and Hanover and Plymouth that those college towns could not overturn those two big cities. And I was the only person on air saying, well, New Hampshire is about to give her a lifeline. And my Republican uh, colleagues start talking about Lazarus. <laughs> I'm like, God, you know Republicans are in trouble when they go straight to the Bible. <laughs> and I'm like, are, are, dead, are dead people, like real dead people, like people who died 200 years ago? According to our founders, well, can we talk about somebody who's alive today? I mean, if we're going to always quote dead people, can we quote Tupac? <laughs> so by 9 o'clock, the tide had turned, Hillary won. And within one hour of saying Hillary won, we were saying, did white people vote against Obama because he's black? I don't see any effect of that. Well, we didn't ask this question just four days prior to that, an hour, where Jack Cafferty made the statement that the only place whiter than the state of Iowa was the North Pole. <laughs> and I sat there and I'm like, I've never been there. But all of a sudden, we couldn't even talk about 
Hillary's strengths as a candidate because we were talking about whether or not white people had lied to pollsters. This is an unconventional election season. Now we're in this conversation where we should be talking about Iraq. We should be talking about what's the plan to get us out of Iraq. We should be talking about what's the plan to ensure 46, 47 million Americans to have health insurance. We should be talking about 36 million Americans who are living below the poverty line, the two million Americans who are losing their home practically every month in this country. Rather than talk about what really matters, we're talking about things that don't matter anymore in a presidential season. And let me say this, because earlier today, you all might have heard that Senator Obama had to not only distance himself from his former pastor, but he had to denounce his former pastor. And I'm not on air tonight, so I'll have to tell you all what my response would be. I say amen. Amen. Now I'm black. Oh, that y'all notice. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe because I went to Florida 21 times last year, you all see that I got an excessive tan. Uh, because I spent my entire life drinking from the bottom of the Mississippi. <laughs> that somehow or another, it, you know, I have some pigment problems. But the truth is that I'm black. I've got a little Irish in me too, and don't deny any of my roots because I like my Irish heritage, especially when I met Bono recently. I said, baby, I'm Irish. Sing me all those lullabies. <laughs> I was going to get my Cornish, my Cornish hen and my greens together. I said, baby, we're going to have cabbage all out the rest of our lives. You'll never have to go to England the way you talk to me. He was talking about ending poverty in Africa. I was talking about him. I got a poverty of the spirit just meeting him. So that's my Irish roots. But Obama denounced his pastor. I know some of y'all are, I, I'm gonna put it on a table. I cannot walk around issues. I'm not afraid to talk about anything. I mentioned sex and prostitution. I'm talking about race now. I'm talking about gender, did PMS. I'll talk about war. I'll talk about age too, because I think getting old is sexy. <laughs> Just don't look that sexy on McCain. But maybe I have to work it up and get me some, you know, bifocus or some trifocus, and maybe I'll look at him differently. I, I admire his service. I think he's tough and tenacious. He's going to be tough to beat. We know that John McCain has a resume and a narrative that will resonate with the American people, but I want somebody who really get, who gets it. I love it when people talk about elitists. Everybody's, you're an elitist. You're an elitist. You're an elitist. Well, call me one. I can't wait to be an elitist. Maybe Anderson Cooper will take me out. <laughs> maybe if I'm an elitist, I can get on that Regis show. Or maybe get on The View. <laughs> but I'll stick with the situation room. But no, race is, a st race is now a conversation, a topic. And I know race is an uncomfortable topic for many Americans. Most Americans will rather look in the rearview mirror and never see signs of segregation, never see signs of whites only, coloreds only. We all think that that happened so many years ago, so many centuries ago, that we forget that it happened just 40 years ago. We just took those signs down. And it took us almost 300 years to ensure that every American, every American could have the right to vote. And so when race is a topic, normally politicians just run out the room 
are those who stick around, they stick around so they can exploit it, to exploit people's fears. And for many years, fears have trumped our hopes. In every election since 1964, race has been a topic. Whether you like it or not, race has been part of the conversation. Because people will use it. Nixon used it. Reagan used it. Yes, my friends, it's being used now within the Democratic Party. Ken Melman went before the NAACP on July 14th 2005 and apologized for 40 years of the Republican Party using it to exploit and to polarize the country. He apologized on behalf of the Republican Party and he said, never again, we will not use race again. And yet in the last two weeks, we've seen ads put up in North Carolina, Mississippi and Louisiana with congressional candidates, Democratic congressional candidates running in red districts. They now have a shot at winning and they're putting Obama's Pastor and Obama up to, to scare people, the boogeyman. It's tragic that anyone would exploit race for political gain, that anyone would use the incendiary comments of a man who clearly spent his life fighting for justice and equality. When I hear Pastor Wright, I hear parts of my own father speaking, lashing out, his anger, his animosity, his resentment, and what he went through, what he went through. But in Obama, I don't hear that. I don't see that. If you want to know what the past looked like and sounds like for those of you who are not black, then listen to Jeremiah Wright, because that's what I had to hear growing up. Day in and day out, you can't do this because the white man going to stop you from doing this. You can't do that because the white man don't want you to get there. You can't do this because I'm fine. If all of these white people are so bad, then why did the person who helped my mother deliver me was white? Why is the person who comes down the street each and every day bringing us food and blankets and whatever we need, why is that person white? Why are the nuns? who are immunizing us, who are coming into our communities every week to help teach us the Bible and about our faith. Why are they white? So I had to contradict that as a child because I didn't want to grow up thinking everybody white was against me and the world will therefore be against me. I knew I had limitations. I wasn't tall enough to play basketball, therefore I lowered the goal. <laughs> I knew I wasn't fast enough to outrun my brothers, therefore I changed the route. <laughs> but I wanted to make it based on my God-given talents and abilities. In Obama, we see the future. So if you are uncomfortable about Obama because of his need to have joined a church and a community that would accept him, that would help bring him to his faith, his Christianity, then don't vote for him. But if you want to believe that this country can now move beyond its past and see a future where all of us can use our God-given talent, then give him an opportunity. 
And likewise with Senator Clinton, if you believe that the glass stained ceiling that has kept women behind, a ceiling that said that we were the weaker sex, that we could no more aspire to leadership abilities than a man because God didn't give us the right tools. I often tell them, I say, why don't you read the Bible since most of you think that God was unjustly, un God somehow was biased against women. Every time God wanted to deal with something tough, he went out and found a woman <laughs> to get it going. When God wanted to save his people, he called on Deborah, who was the first one of the four judges of Israel. And every time the men went into battle to save Israel, they had to go to Deborah, and she helped put the strategy together. And when God had to save his people, he called on Esther. People thought it was her beauty. No, it was her brilliance and her belief, her faith. That gave her the courage to go see the king. And even in the New Testament, and you all know, once Jesus died, was crucified, the men were back in the upper room. Where were the women? Watching and waiting. So I believe that God gave us all equal talents and ability, but for over 200 years this country, we've only allowed our men to serve and our men to be our leaders. And now we have a, a woman who is just as tough, just as tenacious, just as smart, just as brilliant, just as prepared. And people say on day one, I think Hillary was prepared long before day one ever occurred. She came ready. She's neatly packaged and she's neatly prepared. I'm prepared to fight for both of them. I'm prepared to go to bat for both of them. And I'm prepared to celebrate this new season in American politics question is, are you ready? Are you ready to serve? Because it's your turn. It's your turn to serve not just your community, your state, but also your country. This is a new day. This is a new moment in American history, and we can only move our country forward if we're ready to serve and to stand up and to challenge those who believe that the old order, the old status quo, is where we must return. Because we're comfortable with what we've had. But how comfortable can you be when you have seen and witnessed just how incompetent, just how unprepared we are, even in storms, to help people? Is that the kind of country we want? Is that the kind of leadership? $2.7 trillion and they can't solve problems? As far as I'm concerned, the entire country is out of touch and incoherent because we have put people in charge who can't, cannot act without reading a poll or a focus group and saying, well, I'll do this. You know what it's like to read a poll or a focus group? Because I've read a lot myself. It's like knowing what people want but unable to give it to them because you don't know exactly how to do it. We know that the American people won't change. 81% of the American people would like to see the country move in a different direction. That's not Democrats. That's not angry, liberal, anti-war activists. 81 I wish we had that many. <laughs> Hell, I'll go recruiting. 
That, that's, that's Republicans, that's Democrats, that's Independents, that's Blacks, that's Whites, that's Liberals, that's Conservatives, that's Gays, that's Straits, that's Military, that's Non-Military, that's Seniors, that's Young People, that's everybody. And yet, you know why we're here? You know why we're here today? It's because we have a new generation that's willing to open up their wallet and to put their values on the line. President Bush, all due respect to the president, I've had an opportunity to sit down with him on several occasions. And it was interesting. <laughs> Only a storm that wiped out practically every member of my family, left them with all they had on their backs and what they could carry with them. Only a storm could have allowed me to go sit in the White House to talk to George Bush, because I needed help. While everybody else was crying and whining about the slow governmental response and why the government didn't go and get those poor people out of that water and how come so many people died at the Superdome and bodies floating by, I said, wait, maybe the president need a translator. <laughs> maybe he needs someone to explain to him that people are hurting, that they need help. And so the governor of Louisiana appointed me to serve on the Louisiana Recovery Authority, and I said, oh, I don't mind. I'm a native of Louisiana. I want to help my people. And she said, but President Bush would like to have a meeting with some of us. And I'm like, who? She said, well, I put your name on a list. And I first said, well, my birthday is coming up. I can't go sit down with George Bush near my birthday. <laughs> he would ruin it. And the more I listened to my governor, by the way, she and I have the same birthday, so that I found that wasn't a good excuse. <laughs> we both were born in December. And the more I thought about it, and then I called my dad. My dad is a Korean veteran. When I was a little girl, my daddy worked so much that we only saw him practically one or two hours a day. And when he would come home at night, he would just have a blank stare on his face. He was just that tired. They say hard work doesn't kill. I tell you, that's, that's a lie. My mom died at 52. I know hard work kills you, especially when you don't have health insurance and you live near a petrochemical plant and you breathe pollutants air each and every day. And when you're unable to get up in the morning, go to work, and you say your body's tired, the next day you go back to the hospital, where you were born, Charity Hospital, you have to depend on the state to give you medical care, and before you know it, you, she's dead. But my dad, a proud Korean veteran, only left the state of Louisiana twice, once to serve his country, and once when his country finally found him after five days of sitting on his porch and his roof and took him to safety and brought him to San Antonio, Texas. My dad is still not home. He's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, close enough as far as I'm concerned. But he said, if you want to help me and you want to help other people down here, then you go sit down and you talk to the president. And I was trying to tell him, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> he said, that's not a good excuse. I don't like his war in Iraq. That's not a good excuse. Well, I don't like his tax cuts either. That's not a good excuse. I, had, I ran out of excuses because my daddy told me that I had no excuse. He said, because if you go and talk to him, you can explain to him. You can reason with him. You can tell him we all need help. 
and I did that. And not only did I do it the first time, after talking to George Bush, we got along so well explaining things. Houses, levees, <laughs> the roads. I got to know him in ways that I'm like, oh God, all these years of just pent up hate. And all I had to do was go over there and show some love. And $6.4 billion later that you, the American people, encouraged Congress to give us to rebuild our homes, over $3 billion to rebuild our levees, a billion dollars to rebuild our hospitals, our schools, our libraries. We are internally grateful to you for what you have done to help us rebuild. But it taught me a big lesson sitting down with George W. Bush. And that is, we, can, we cannot put people in office that will only talk to each other and not cross that aisle and that divide. Just won't work, given our problems. I wish we could elect a Congress that was comprised of only Democrats. <laughs> Trust me. I was there when we had like a 52-seat majority, and we were still unable to solve big problems. So we really need to ensure that we get it right this time. And that's where you come in. Because you have to decide this election season. Don't just get caught up into Hillary and Obama and McCain. For those of you who are McCain supporters, Ryan Paul might have a couple of people here too. <laughs> Ralph Nader, forgive me if I forgot about you. Don't get caught in the personalities. Get caught up in the country and bringing about this new day and this change. I'm a Democrat, so I'm saying we're offering you two great candidates, two wonderful reasons to stick it out and to wait until that last vote is cast on June 3rd. Two reasons to believe, again, that this country can become the very best country in the world, and two reasons to go out there on one cold, wintry, rainy day to ensure that we not only elect a good president, but also a good senator and, a good, and good Congress people on down the ballot, because it's our turn. We cannot let this moment pass us by. For all of those young people who are now so eagerly and actively taking their seats at the table, it's time that we come together, that we bring about this new day. And when we bring about this new day, we'll never have to worry about the glass ceiling or the signs reappearing in our country because we would have made the change that we've sought all our lives. I'm grateful every time I come to Minnesota because of the leaders that have come out of this state have always been good leaders for America. I'm grateful for the Hubert Humphreys of the world, the Walter Mondales, and yes, the Paul Wellstones. They've always represented not just your values, but my values too. Let's bring those values into the political marketplace and sell them to the country so that we have a country that we can love and all, and all fight for. Not just because we want the strongest and toughest military, actually, once we get a Democratic president, I'm going to finally put my name on the short list to become defense secretary. 
If Donald Rumsfeld can do the job, I know I'm qualified to do the job. If Dick Cheney once held the job, I know I can do the job. And here is what I promise you. I will not inflate the military budget. I will not order $400 turkeys for Thanksgiving to give special contracts to my friends. In fact, I have no military contractors as friends. <laughs> so this will be a whole new ball game with me. When someone walk in with their smart bunker buster bombing ball, what is that? What? And they're all shaped like something that I cannot describe without being graphic. <laughs> I'm going to be the defense secretary that bring about real strength to America, to teach America what security really means. Now, I know I might be a better diplomat. I'm just having my fantasy moment. <laughs> I would love to help restore America's prestige in the world. Can you imagine my qualifications for Secretary of State? I cook the best gumbo in the world. <laughs> I put in ingredients that everybody wants to see, and I can stir up anything and everybody. I have a little Spanish sausage. I use a little African gumbo root, a little okra. I got some European flavor and texture, some Asian rice. I got it going on. <laughs> the world will come together with me, and I can bring the world back to a sensible order. But maybe I should just think about organizing to ensure that the wonderful people who are now knocking on the door saying, I want to run for office. I want to be the next president. So many little boys, so many little girls are going to bed every night now, seeing Hillary and seeing Barack and saying, I too can become president. This is a great day, and as I said, I never thought I would see this day for the sheer joy. So let me wrap it up. So I stick to my script. Always do. I even wrote some good stuff today about Reverend Wright. Well, you know when you write something on yellow paper, it's serious. <laughs> see, that's what lawyers want to find out. What's on that paper? Mm -mm. This is some good stuff. <laughs> I might use it for my column tomorrow. As a superdelegate, I'm going to help solve another crisis before we end this primary battle. And that is, we're going to make sure that the voters in Florida and Michigan, it's not their fault that their officials sought not to comply with the rules, but we're going to make sure that they get seats at the convention. Might be in the bleachers, <laughs> might be folding chairs or lawn chairs, but they will get seats and they too will be part of our great tradition. Democracy is a messy business. It's not easy. I've lived long enough now to know what a hanging chair, a swinging chair, and my favorite, a pregnant chair it is. I've lived long enough now to walk past the Supreme Court every day and say, equal justice under the law, ha. When you see a court that rules, as they did yesterday, six to three, to put the burden on poor people, on minorities and others to have a quote-unquote government-issued ID as, a, as the entry to voting. When you see a country that put restrictions on people who conduct voter registration drives, illegal women voters all, all of a sudden is a radical organization, it's time for a change. It's time for new leadership. 
It's time to make our democracy and our country the very best. The gold standard in, electing, in elections, the gold standard when it comes to civil liberties, equal justice under the law. And in this election season, we have that opportunity. 56 congressional campaigns, seven presidential campaigns, 19 state and local campaigns. I campaigned in 46 states for John Kerry, four more states that would have been Miss USA without the bikini. <laughs> but I promise for Hillary or Barack, I'm going to all 50 states. In July, I'll be in Alaska. I'll get my chance to go back to Hawaii. I got to work on my tan. <laughs> got to learn how to surf. Ha. I see the waves coming, I'm running. If I see a yellowfish, I'm going to bake it right there on the beach. <laughs> but I'm going back out there because this election matters to you, it matters to me, it matters to the American people, and it matters to those young boys and girls over there in Iraq and Afghanistan risking their lives for our freedom. So let us get it right, let us stick together, let us make sure that this is an election that we can all be proud of and regardless of who you're backing tonight and who you will back in November, let's make sure that you back someone that will give us a country that we can all appreciate and enjoy. So thank you so much. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and if you have any recipes, I'll take them too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And don't give me no easy questions. This is my last lecture of the semester. So make it hard so I can go and grade those papers tomorrow and feel like I got really run over. Thanks, Don. Hi. Back in December um, or November, you wrote an article, or co-wrote an article, about why women hate Hillary. Um, and I was wondering, I thought, of, I thought a lot about that um, this winter. And we were in New Hampshire, a group of us um, from the school working on the election or on the, the primaries. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about whether or not women of your generation, how they feel about Hillary and whether or not they see her as someone who's fulfilling every dream that they've ever wanted to see for women in America or if she's still kind of their competition. Deborah Tannen and I uh, responded to questions in Moore Magazine, so it wasn't an article. Deborah Tannen is a colleague at Georgetown University. And at the time, we all did a, uh, what we call like a conference about women and Hillary Clinton. Hillary had what we call a women's problem. Um, she doesn't have that problem today. It's Barack who has a quote unquote women's problem. Because Hillary is capturing the vast majority of the women's vote in all of the um, in all of the states at this point. We've also seen uh, a, women, uh, a surge in women voters. But at the time, Hillary did have a women's problem. She had a problem of connecting with uh, uh, women who uh, their age range were from 30 to 45, who didn't see the world the same way that Hillary and many other feminists of her generation saw the world, as you know, an opportunity to fight as opposed to figuring out how uh, they can uh, make gains without fighting for gains. They didn't, see, they didn't come up with the same uh, obstacles that Hillary's generation came up. Look, I didn't come up with the same obstacles my mother generation came up with. 
Uh, by the time I came of age, uh, I no longer had to sing, you know, I'm, I am woman, hear me roar. Uh, I had a new, an, another tune to sing, but that was not my song. I still had, I understood that song. And so at the time we wrote that article back in the fall of 2007, Hillary had a women's problem. She doesn't have that problem now connecting with women that age, and she's done quite well. Obama continues to reap the benefit of his generation by connecting better with young people, young women, as well as young uh, women uh, who make a certain income as well as have a certain educational level. But Hillary clearly has done far better with women voters than she was doing, say, in the middle of the contest last, uh, last fall. One could argue that she's doing good with men, too. Good evening. Thanks for coming. Yes, ma'am. We have heard that, or I've heard comments on both sides about the superdelegates. Mm. One side saying that they should reflect the opinions of the voters who've come out to the caucuses and the primaries. The other saying that the superdelegates have a, a super purpose, if you will, <laughs> that you need to, to take the responsibility to vote your own conscience, not necessarily what the rest of us have thought. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little opinion on which side you fall. You're not my boo. <laughs> um, look, there. I want to win. You're talking to somebody who has been involved in presidential politics since I was 23 years old. 25 years. I want to win. And at the end of the day, my metric might be different than, say, another superdelegate. I don't have a constituency. I'm not a congressperson, a senator, a governor. Okay, I don't represent a state party. I'm an activist. You know, I was appointed 10 years ago. No one cared about my vote until this year. I mean, my nieces and nephews never called me about politics. Auntie Donna, you're a superdelegate. I said, don't lobby me until you finish your education until you clean up your room. Don't lobby me. Stop that. So we, we can use any, there's nothing in the rules that determine that will help us guide our votes. In fact, Rule 12J, by the way, I'm on the Rules Committee too. Rule 12J says that it's a matter of conscience. So that, that is truly the only metric. It's a matter of my judgment, my conscience. And what, ultimately might move me, will not move anyone else or my other 794 colleagues. But I know at the end of the day, I would like my vote to help unify the party. I am not willing to use my vote to beat up on Hillary or Barack. I get emails all the time, the most insulting, un, you know, uncivil emails I've ever seen, disrespectful, telling me that I cannot support this one because of this, and I can't support that one. I say, please, save that for somebody else. I don't buy that. I don't buy the argument that my vote, my vote should be used to stab him or stab her, and I resent that because I see it happening 
45% of Hillary supporters are telling me, this is what the polls, that they will not vote for Obama, and 36% of his, his supporters are saying they will not vote for Hillary. When I get those emails, I, if, if it's Obama, I'm voting for McCain. If it's Hillary, I'm voting for, I'm like, you know what? It's Katrina, and it's coming ashore, and your dad, and your sisters, and your brothers are stuck. Some of them are poor, some of them couldn't get out, and you're telling me I'm gonna vote for McCain and go through that again? Are you telling me that my right as a woman, my right to choose, which hangs in the balance, is more important? I mean, yes, I care about this country. And I'm not going to use my vote to hurt either one of them. I want to unify my party. I want my party to stand together. I want to be able to go anywhere in the country with my head up high and say, it's Hillary, and here's why, or it's Obama, and here's why. Now that's me. And let me tell you something, I'm tested, I'm battle ready. <laughs> I've been in the kitchen, fat too long as you can tell, I love the kitchen. <laughs> show me a pot, I'll show you how to stir it. But I'm not going to play games with my vote. I don't want nobody to send me chocolate, flowers, champagne, or anything else. I don't want to have a dinner with you. I don't want to be twisted. I'm very clear about my, who I am and what I want. And I'm not going to let anybody come up with some arguments, some specious arguments about Hillary or Obama. I'm, I'm t honestly, there are days I'm so sick of the fact that Al Gore inspired the invention of the internet. I can't take any more emails. He inspired the invention. Now, he didn't create it. Although if you want to give him credit for that, give it to him. But I get these emails and they're, just, they're very disturbing to me because there's so much at stake, so much at stake. And this politics has become very personal to me. You know when you're a little kid growing up in Louisiana, you just say, oh, I, I love competition. And this candidate is going to give us a playground. My mom used to say, why are you voting for that candidate? I'm, well, first of all, I wasn't old enough to vote. But why are you working for that candidate? Because we're going to get a playground. I'm like, and he's also going to pave the streets. We never had a car, but that seemed important to talk to people about. <laughs> I got excited about politics at a young age. And at the age of 48, you know what keeps me going? When I get up in the morning and the Supreme Court has ruled that you got to show a government-issued ID. When I get up in the morning and I see that you know, there's food shortages across this country, the richest country on the planet, we got food shortages. I get up in the morning and I read that food stamps now is, is on the rise, one out of 20 Americans on food stamps. And you're telling me I'm just going to sit back and wait for somebody to self-destruct or for Carl Rove to tell me which one he preferred to go up against? Oh, please. I, I'm a fighter. I want, I want to win and I'm going to back a candidate who will be able to win, and I'm going to help Hillary or Obama or Obama-Hillary, whichever wins the race. And that's how I feel. Hi. Hello. Um, on the subject of unifying the party, um, I know there's another argument that suggests that the superdelegates should weigh in early and therefore uh, keep the party behind one candidate. Um, but I understand your argument that, that the value that letting everyone in the party have their say. Um, 
How do you suggest that the Democratic Party unifies and doesn't tear itself apart while still going all the way to the, to the convention? Well, we can first start by not taking cheap shots at each other. That's number one. There, there's enough problems in this world and this country for us to have a civil conversation without us going into the gotchas, the gutter of American politics. And it's unfortunate that, you know, look, I, 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 I'm a cable call girl. I, I have to tell you, we're about to enter rating season, you know, and everybody like to get their ratings going. And, you know, often you're up against, like, I've never been paired with a kind and gentle Republican. I'll, I get the rabbit fire. I feel like I break them all in. Like, what did you eat for breakfast? I mean, just really tell me, because you're really hot this morning. Can you just chill out? No, you know? And they, you know, you know, I was out there defending the Clintons back in the 90s. I was out there defending the Clintons soon after 9-11, when the Republicans attacked our patriotism and attacked the Clinton-Gore administration for not doing enough to protect the country after the attack in Yemeni. I mean, I've been out there for a long time, so I get all of these arguments. Anyone who believes that one of these candidates will have a better time going through the Republican attack machine, you don't know politics. This is not like you know, Dick Cheney's description of how the Iraqis will greet us once we got to, you know, to Baghdad. Nobody's gonna be throwing roses or you know, uh, uh, flowers behind Obama or Hillary once they become the nominee. I would just hope that in the closing weeks of the campaign, we find ways to bring our party together. Obama should not be the only candidate that's discussing race, and Hillary should not have to take on gender by herself. And yet, somehow or another, we want these two candidates to speak to issues that, quite frankly, we all have a responsibility. I was glad to see John McCain go down to Memphis on April 4th and say that he was wrong about the King holiday bill. Well, you know, at 71, I'm glad. He could have made a mistake. And I said nothing negative about John McCain's. I said, thank you. We appreciate that. So let us all conduct this campaign on a high note. Let's try to end on a joyful uh, note. And let's stop playing the gotcha. I understand why we have to stir up controversies to get an edge. But we're basically polluting the water the same way the Republicans have polluted it, and we're calling it something else. It's still polluted, and we shouldn't do it. We should not do it. If you think your health care plan is better than Obama's, talk about it. If you think your gas price, your, your plan to lower our gas costs is better than Hillary, talk about it. But I don't want to hear this other noise, because it's divisive, and it's unwarranted. And I get sick of being, people calling me a traitor because I haven't endorsed the black one, or a traitor because I haven't endorsed the female one. I keep saying, I overlap. Maybe if John Edwards was in a race, I'm a Southern, I could say something good about him, too. But it's, 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 it's frivolous conversation that's really tearing us apart, that, that leads 45% you know, of Hillary's supporters, 36% of Barack's supporters to say, if either one of them, if they're not the nominee, they're going with John McCain uh, sitting at home. That disturbs me. So I hope we do come together in, in June. I actually have a question, if you don't oh. mind. Well, you can ask, too. <laughs> OK, well, first, oh. no. Um, do you feel like it's possible for a um, Democratic ticket with both Barack and Hillary, either way? And how would you feel about that, personally? 
You know, I don't live, I live in the world of reality. I don't know. Um, I don't know how realistic that is at this hour. Uh, we'll see. I did have an opportunity in 2000 to be a part of the vice presidential selection process. And I have to tell you, that was really cool. My first choice was Tina Turner. <laughs> I, you know, Al Gore stiff. People say that he wasn't, you know, loose enough. I figure, you know, she could loosen him up. Well, I'm just trying to help my candidate, you know. It didn't fly over well. It seemed, I heard that she wasn't qualified, and I say, why? She's the right age. They said, but she hasn't had a hit in 20 years. <laughs> Proud Mary, I guess, had gone off the charts. But um, I would like to see Hillary or Barack select someone that would not only help them balance the ticket, and there are many ways to balance a ticket. You can balance a ticket, you know, with ge geographical considerations. You can look at some of your weaknesses. I mean, John McCain, there's no question that John McCain is gonna look for someone younger. <laughs> He's gonna look for someone with experience in domestic issues, someone who's a lot more conversant on the economy and healthcare. So this forgotten American tour, he won't have to do it for the next five months. Maybe they're forgotten because when your party was in power, you forgot them. <laughs> Maybe that's not logical. All right, uh, but I think that Hillary and Obama will be able to expand the electoral map by giving you know, some other considerations. Uh, clearly, they, it would be a net plus to have the two of them together. I don't know, you know who, at this point, I, you know, if I look at the math, I could determine, but the math may not be the only uh, criteria the remaining superdelegates will use. They might use psychology. They say, I like it when they say, we're, not, we're Democrats, we don't major in math only. I'm like, wow, I know we don't major in science, so what's the new metric? And they say, psychology. So I'm into psychology too, <laughs> since that was one of my majors in college. And the psychology of this race is that I would like to see the two of them uh, figure out how they can help each other. One of them will win, one will lose, one will go back to the United States Senate, and one hopefully will be on the road to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but we'll see. I, I hope that they pick, uh, they look at each other, give each other great consideration, and if they don't decide to select one, uh, uh, you know, their opponent in the primary, maybe they will at least say, can I get your best advice? This has been very bruising, my friends. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's been, very, it's been a very bruising primary season. I mean, these, the, the undertones, the overtones of race, of gender, um, at times it's been very tough. It's been very hard, but uh, that's why we're Democrats, because we're all battle-tested and weary when it comes to injustice. And I think at the end of the day, we will be a stronger party because we went through this primary process. Hi. Hi. Um, do you think that the media has played a role in like the subject of kind of battling with the candidates? Like watching CNN, you'll see like Hillary's attacks on Obama and Obama's on Hillary and like, what do you think the role of the media is and how 
If it is an issue, how can it be stopped? The media loves a horse race. I mean, come on. They, they get paid to look up controversy. And you have to deter. I learned this in 2000 when I was campaign manager. I learned this in 88 when I worked for Dukakis and I got fired because I made, I made up my own talking points. <laughs> I was never short of words. I was just off message. But I got fired at the Waldorf Astoria, which was a nice you know, backdrop to be on a nightly news for the first time in my life. But I didn't go back and say anything after that. I just buttoned my lip and went home and voted. Um, the media, like, they, they enjoy a horse race. I mean, every day you get your talking points from, you know, CNN, and you just say, okay, we're going to talk about the fact that Hillary health care plan will give more this than Obama's. And then I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, but they both have plans that would help ensure millions of Americans. John McCain plan doesn't include anybody. How come I can't talk about that? And so, yeah, the media liked the horse race. And God, this is such a great horse race. <laughs> you got the former first lady of the United States, a United States senator, running against a biracial, you know, a black person. I don't know how you become black when your mom's white and your dad's African, but that's okay. He's black. Remember when he wasn't black enough? Yeah, I remember those days. Obama wasn't black enough. Now he's so black that he's probably purple. But that's how you want to turn most of the states purple. Boy, it's, it's so weird to be in an environment like this, but it's also very gratifying because all my life I have fought to see women and minorities elected to the highest offices, and we thought the only office we could elect them. When I went home back in the 1980s after the 1984 presidential campaign, I was looking for something to do, and Mary Landrieu, one of my good friends, she was. I was an intern, and she was 23, I was 17. And I said, Mary, why don't you run statewide? Oh, no. This was at a time when nobody was doing that. Ann Richards ran, she won. Next thing you know, Mary's like, I can be state treasurer. I'm like, yeah, if Texas can do it, you know Louisiana, we can do it too. You know, we have this thing about Texans. We're like, if they can do it, we can do it. They have a female governor. We had a female governor, you know? Female senator. We now have a female senator. But if Mississippi, we nobody look at Mississippi. <laughs> They've never elected a woman to Congress. We've elected a couple. They've never elected a woman to, you know, United States Senate. We've done that. Never a female governor. So we don't look to Mississippi. We look to Texas. But the media like to draw conflict. I just want to let you know, I believe that in politics, you try, to, you try to express your values. You try to live out your dreams. You don't make this a, a fight about you know, gutter politics. You try to do things because at the end of the day, you really want to make change happen. That's what it's about. That's, that's the whole process is to make change happen. Next question, comment, recipe. We'll take one more question, but she'll be available. Look at that. She's restricting my ability so to speak. Feel free my to first talk amendment. back there. My First Amendment. Hey. Are you related to Dick Cheney? <laughs> be careful, Annie. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a constitutional law expert. Elitist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I have to pick on her. Yes. Thank you for being here. Um, Thank you. I had the opportunity to see one of the CNN television shows taped in Washington that is no longer in the air. But I, I remembered when watching Crossfire that <laughs> it doesn't seem like when people are talking on television, if you take it out of the context of the television screen, 
um, that it's anything like a normal conversation. You've been doing this for a long time, so I imagine you're a natural at it by now. But can you talk about when you were first getting into this, how you prepared to go on the air and engage in this kind of conversation? I was nervous. I was scared. Look, I've been fired before. <laughs> I got a tongue on me. Whoa, whoa. I drank Tabasco with my coffee. I'm spicy hot. There's nothing mild about me. So the first thing I try to do is to write my own talking points. Because I am hotter than July on a cool winter day. It's just that when my mama took me out the oven, I came out burnt. Well, it's, so, it's, it's interesting about politics because, first of all, I try not to allow anybody to get under my skin. You really got to work me up and over to like really touch a nerve. Because it is politics. I get along with George Will very well. I like George Will humor. I don't understand George Will mind. George Will told me recently that he rocked from the inside. And I, I was like scared. <laughs> I said, OK, George, I won't ask that question again. It was a dumb question. I said, George, how come you don't? I have more gray hair than you. He said, it's because I'm rocking from the inside. <laughs> Bob Novak, oh my god, I love Bob Novak. Bob Novak was the first one who reached across and said, it's going to be OK. And then he slaughtered me. <laughs> and you know, after the first couple of weeks of making a mistake and going home saying, I should have hit him harder. I should have like pulled out my pistol and just smacked them. <laughs> then I realized, you know what? I'm not talking to them. They're talking to mom and pop America. I'm going to talk to mom and pop America. Once I figured out who I was talking to, I've been OK. So no matter what topic you give me, I'm talking to mom and pop America. I often think of my little focus group is out there in Omaha, Nebraska. I don't know why I say Omaha. I figure somebody in Omaha watching me. <laughs> and I'm trying to reach out to the people in Nebraska and trying to talk to them. And I don't want to talk above them or below them. I want to talk to their hearts. And I want to appeal to them. If the topic is the economy, I talk about the cost of eggs being $1.99 or a gallon of milk being $3.99. These are not whole food prices. This is the cheapest I can find within a 10-mile radius of the United States Capitol where I live. And I try to keep it real. I try to talk about the problems as if I live them too, that I know what it costs to fill up my gas tank and my jalopy. And so I don't really go after this left versus right because that's politics. That's me, you know, with my liberal elitist penchant, my friends, I guess, I hang out with. I don't want to, I, I want to let mom and pop America know that I'm, I'm with you. And these people in Washington are crazy. <laughs> I might live here, but if I had my hose pipe, I'd go and douse that whole capital down because it's got some junk, they got some weeds growing. They need to, like, they need a little washing. <laughs> or, you know, some of them need to be, you know, giving them, the pink slip. So that's how I deal with my TV time. I'm very honored as a woman of color to be able to not only participate in many of the great CNN shows, but also this week with George Stepanopoulos, Nightline on a regular basis, Good Morning America, if 
They can convince me why it's important to get up at 6 a.m. And of course, national public radio. I'm proud to be a syndicated columnist. I've always had a big mouth. I knew as a little girl what I wanted to do with my life. And all I was looking for is an opportunity to grow beyond those two sets of train tracks and to move beyond Kennel, Louisiana, and to move into the mainstream. And I'm grateful for all of the opportunities I've had as a woman, as a, as a minority, as a black woman, a woman who grew up in poverty, to be able to have sat down with presidents and worked with vice president, to have been able to represent this country as a congressional staffer at many international conferences. This is a great country. The American people are the very best. If I ever have an opportunity to serve again, as I had before in the past, as a government employee for 10 years on Capitol Hill, I will do it in a heartbeat because I think America's best days are yet to come. And I do believe the American people deserve the best. So on that note, thank you all for your great hospitality. It's always a pleasure to be in the state of Minnesota and here at St. Olaf. Thank you. 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 Thank you.